So I think you all know who this person is, right? Jerry Falwell. Okay. You may not know um, who this person is. Any idea? That is Jean-Paul Sartre. Jean-Paul Sartre, if any of you remember some of your philosophy courses, you took any. The somewhat famous, not as famous as Jerry Falwell famous, sort of founder or sort of leading proponent of the school of what's known as existentialism, opposed to um, about Falwell's way of living, about as strong as you could be, the exact opposite end of the spectrum. He was French, not American, very much an atheist, an opponent of any form of religion expression. But actually, this is the thing about these two. They actually believe something about the world very, very similar deep down in their core. And I'll tell you how I came to know this. I was at Yale Divinity School in the fall of 1993 taking a moral practicum uh, course called Freedom in Action. It sounds like a patriotic cartoon. Freedom in Action. It was about theories of moral agency. And we were discussing Sartre's huge, voluminous doorstop of a book, 900 pages, being in nothingness. And we were talking about the part of that book that he calls the gaze. It's one of his understandings of human nature that we always exist under, almost controlled by another person's gaze or controlling them with our own. And he said the example of the power of the gaze is this, is that you imagine yourself perhaps down on one knee, in front of an old-fashioned doorknob, you know, the kind with the keyhole that the light goes through and you can see through, and you're looking through it, you don't necessarily you know, do anything bad or peeping or anything, and all of a sudden you notice that there's someone behind you, and you felt caught by their gaze because they now know that you're a pervert. His idea was that you could not explain in the power of the gaze, that first impression tells so much and you're going to be trapped by that. And we were reading this and discussing this, and perhaps this is just the way my mind works. About half the seminar were, you know, master students like myself, and the other half were doctoral students. And I immediately spouted out, uh, well, what's to stop you from getting up off your knee and turning around to the other person who just caught you in their gaze and saying, um, I was just fixing the doorknob. I was just seeing how the light came through. And I could fe- hear one of the doctoral students on the other side of the room snort like that. Silly little master student, you don't get how theory really works. And perhaps feeling that it earned my place at the table, these are the words that came pouring out of my mouth. I started talking about how Sartre's phenomenology, in contradistinction from Martin Buber's theory of dialogical intersubjectivity, presupposes a counter-subjectivity that I consider to be nothing more than a desacralized, secularized version of original sin, herein posited as a variety of assumed metaphysical guilt in a universe absent of appeal to omniscient deity. Got that? Neither did I. Don't worry about it. Jerry Falwell. He kind of believes the same thing, though, about the gaze, the power of the gaze. It's eyes on you. He once said, and from time to time I always like to look in on the competition, so-called. So this is probably 10, 15 years ago. And I was looking at one of Jerry Falwell's and listening to uh, sort of innumerable sermons about what he called sexual immorality and how it was so difficult and so pervasive and so much attached to the fact that we were original sinners. Falwell said that if he was driving down a street late at night through a torrential downpour and he spied off to the side of the road the wife of one of his co-ministers on his staff at his church and she was just barely, barely keeping herself from being washed away, down and down and down the buckets came on her head. He said he would just 
keep on driving and leave her there. Because he said he could not afford and none of us should afford the idea that a rumor will start that we were driving in a car with someone who was not our spouse. That's the connection between Sartre and Falwell. Life is literally for both of them incommunicado. They're an odd pairing, yes, but both live in a universe in which we cannot tell the truth because other people will not listen. We won't be able to tell the truth about our lives because too much of life is ruled by gossip and innuendo. There can never be true listening, only suspicion. This actually hits on one through these two men. One of the key points of our DNA, of our core beliefs here at Wellsprings, which is that we offer a choice spiritually beyond either absolute secularism or absolute fundamentalism. Because what we are after here is not the perfection of a certain kind of doctrine, which is what Falwell and Sartre were after in their own ways, just from very separate places. What we are about here is the formation of character, the formation of our innermost lives so that our lives ring true with peace and compassion and real love. We speak for a different tradition that says it is not about the perfectibility of doctrine that we are about. We are about the ongoing formation of our lives. You hear this, especially about listening from the ancient mystic poet Rumi. He said, make everything in you an ear, each atom of your being an ear, and you will hear at every moment what the source is whispering to you. Make all aspects of our being an ear, and we will hear what we need to hear. This resonates with one of our core beliefs at Wellsprings, that the Spirit is talking to us every day. Every day, each way, in some way, revelation is unsealed and is still going on, and it is not a matter of looking to that one perfect doctrine or one perfect truth, if we think it is perfect, and saying, that will get me through. No, it is here and now. And so the opportunity and indeed the responsibility in our lives is to cultivate our character through our perception so that we can go deeper. Now, one of the reasons that I think people sometimes seek out that dogma or that doctrine, is because listening as truth-seeking, making all aspects of our lives an ear so that we can open our perception, is no guarantee that we are always going to like what we hear or that life will give us the truth that we desire. But I believe it will do something better for us. It will help us grow up. Both of what Sartre and Falwell talk about is incredibly childish. Not in the good sense of childlike, childish in the sense of petty. They're scenarios of shame and suspicion and fear and almost a contest for who can tell the biggest falsehood about another person's life. In some way, Sartre and Falwell, for as famous or as infamous as they were, Their view of life sort of just condenses the worst aspects of what I remember from middle school. Rumor, not truth, not listening, fibbing, fearing, not wanting to be exposed, not wanting to be caught by what another person would say about us. Real listening, though, making of ourselves, every part of ourselves an ear, is about allowing ourselves to listen beyond our fear of being misunderstood 
and to grow into that fullness and into that maturity that is inside each and every one of us and is our birthright. The thing most similar for Sartre and Falwell is that ultimately our character doesn't matter so much to them. It doesn't matter if we were just down at that opening to the doorway, fixing it. It doesn't matter if we were extending kindness to the spouse of someone we know. It doesn't matter what our character is. We are trapped in that truth of the fact that we are guilty and never really proven innocent. Our Unitarian Universalist ancestors had a very different way of looking at life. They believed, especially if you read throughout all of the 1800s, they believed in this idea, and not just an idea but experience, that our salvation is attained not by what we do and not by what we believe, but that wholeness in life, salvation is attained by the ongoing formation of our character. Listening equips us to be able to face the challenge of not knowing everything, of not knowing everything, but trusting that we will learn what we need to. Jim Morrison of The Doors got it exactly half right and half wrong when he said, I think it was Roadhouse Blues, the future is uncertain and the end is only near. The future is uncertain, but the end is only near if we allow our fear to shut down our capacity to listen to ourselves and to listen to each other. If we sense that doom is inevitable, you know what? We are right it is. If, because the future is uncertain, we allow that to cower us up and remove ourselves from life and shut down what Rumi invites us to do, make all our days a perception for our hearing and our listening, then we will find that, in fact, we are as lost as Falwell and Sartre both think we are. Listening is the preeminent spiritual practice because it invites us to open back up when we would shut ourselves down. Now, in the past few weeks, I've talked about the rally to restore sanity. I'm very excited about this. I'm going to be there. But, you know, there's another, quote-unquote, counter-demonstration that day. <laughs> the march to keep fear alive. Now, actually, this, it's, it's what Stephen Colbert in his blowhard persona that he inhabits so much, I don't know how he can look at himself in the mirror. He's so good at it. The march to, say it with me, the march to keep fear alive. That's why the rally to restore sanity is so important. It is amazing in our time how little faith our politics show in us and how little faith, and I'm not talking religious faith, we have in our politics, the faith that we can listen deeper. It appears that everything is falling apart all the time. To use a sports metaphor, it is always the fourth quarter. Our team is always down. Baseball, a little closer to my heart, is always the bottom of the ninth inning, and we are down to our last strike. It is always that affect again and again and again that we hear. Everything is always on the line all the time. It's almost as if some people, I don't know who the some they are, the man, call them whatever you want to, are hoping to induce a collective anxiety attack in us and they will vote from that place. But this is the thing. Politics has become a game and it's very unproductive as a game because governing is not politicking. But even in sports, it is not always the last two minutes of the fourth quarter. It is not always the bottom of the ninth. There's a lot of time that comes before that, but when we react from this place of anxiety and listen to people who would stoke our fear, we think it is always at the end. We think because the future is uncertain, 
the end is always right around the corner. The other day I heard an ad and said, so-and-so's politics, so-and-so's policies, not disagree with them or we think they're bad for X or we think they're bad for Y. They will destroy America. I heard that phrase five times. Now, that was actually a right-wing ad, and I'm not a right-winger, but I got to tell you, all these, I think, ten I had on Saturday alone from progressive causes, they're trying to mine that same fear. They're trying to say not just something is at stake, but everything is at stake. I mean, I come from a family. I'm not pleased that I, I love them very much, but I'm not pleased about this, that I had no fewer than two of my intimate relatives tell me in 2004, when I was in Florida and they were still up here in Pennsylvania, half-jokingly, and I say only half-jokingly because I kept repeating it, repeating and repeating it. Now, ultimately, they didn't do this, but that if Bush got reelected, they were moving to Canada. America survives. <laughs> they got over it. This is such a thing, though, about when anxiety infects us and we stop listening. Listen to yourself, if you can, where you're at your most anxious. Listen to other people. What you will hear, by and large, if they've forgotten how to listen, are categorical non-negotiables. This way or that way. My way, the wrong way, the highway. Black or white. That's it. Game over. I'm done. I'm leaving the table. This all or nothing, black or white, fear-driven way of living is really no way of living. And what it shuts down within us is the capacity to, as Rumi said, make an ear of our being. Reb Nachman of Bratslav was a famous Hasidic teacher centuries ago. And almost echoing parts of what Jim Morrison said, he didn't listen to the second half, though. He said, the whole world is a narrow bridge, and the point is to learn not to be afraid. We all feel fear, but we don't have to react with it. All cultures, and I include ours right now in America, sadly, all cultures that are seized by fear lose that inability to listen and become diseased. I'm not talking diseased in terms of a bodily sickness. I'm talking diseased in terms of breaking down that word, as I know many of you understand. Diseased. Many of you know I've talked already too much from this pulpit about the show Lost. So I'm not going to do any of that more right now. But let's say there is a big, big hole in my post-Lost listening, watching universe and indeed, there's a big hole in my post-lost heart right now. So I saved for myself one of the things that people have been telling me for years I need to watch, which is The Wire from HBO. It's awesome. The Wire, I don't want to go into too much detail about it if you don't know about it. It is a study of sort of the cops and robbers in inner city Baltimore. I'm talking about the first season, if you've seen beyond that. I haven't, so I can't talk about that. But really, The Wire refers to you know, the actual wire, the police getting a wire so they can understand where the criminality is and how they can prosecute it. But so much in the wire, both for the people who are committing the crimes and for the cops who are on the lookout, so much of it is about learning to evade and avoid. Everything and everyone is suspect. It is life literally under the gaze. 
It's all about closeted speech and listening in, seeing if we can hear what we don't want other people have us to hear. But it is not about listening to each other or listening for the truth. The wire is about a diseased system. As beautiful as the wire is, it is the most fatalistic thing I have ever seen because for all the talk and all the chatter and all the different ways that people are trying to get over, the cops or the robbers, nothing ever changes. They're stuck. And it is so tragic. It moves so fast and talks so much. But the show is perhaps the most claustrophobic thing that I have ever seen. The faster I think sometimes that we talk, it's driven by that anxiety that if we don't get all our words out, and I'm saying this the day after the silent retreat, we might be afraid that the quicker we will die, (laughs) that the words are the reason we stay alive. This is true. The more scarce we think life is, the more we have to scramble and scramble and scramble to catch up with it. I almost think of it as that final image too often talked about in religion as a meaningful thing. And I've heard some, but most often it's done with sadness, which is the deathbed confession. The final moment of truth-telling in a life where finally the person or the people around them are able to hear or listen to the truth in that life. But in reality, here and now, if all our lives, if, as Gandhi said they were, are experiments in truth each day, Every day, in every way, every day will be a confession. Every day will be a confession of who we are in good and in bad. Every day will be a confession in terms of joy. Every day will be a confession in terms of sadness. Every day will be a confession in terms of the wisdom we have and the wisdom we don't have and the wisdom that we are growing towards. And hopefully it won't have to all come spilling out at once at the end of our lives. Because we will be right here and right now. Our great teacher, Emerson, he taught two things about this. One is that he said, all of us really wake up to the reality of life when we recognize that judgment day is every day. And the other, more positively, I love this story. He said that when he viewed his friend Thoreau on Thoreau's deathbed, he was asked by a sort of religiously orthodox aunt of his, so... Have you made your peace with God? Like Falwell, perhaps, would have asked. Have you made your peace with God? Thoreau responded, I didn't know God and I had ever quarreled. That is truth-telling and listening every day in small ways and in large ways. Last week, I talked about and encouraged all of us to stay within that place of a namaste practice, especially in our listening that bow, that recognition of each other, that really sees, perceives each other's presence. To listen with those namaste ears, seeing the divine in the other person that is a part of ourselves. It is not just projected outward and changes what is out there. At the deepest level, when we listen with the practice of namaste, we change what is in here. We are reminded that there are places and indeed the deepest places within us that are always bigger than our fear. But they are only bigger than our fear if we allow ourselves to hear. Amen. May you live in blessing.
Let's pray together. O source, simply, may we listen to ourselves, to each other, to you. May we listen, 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 listen. Amen.